One of the things I talk a lot about with my portfolio is what I call the, the three rules of the invisible game. And I hesitate here because I'm going to look like a crazy person, but you know, hopefully your audience can flame me online or just ignore me completely. So there is a game people play in business. And then there, I think there's the invisible game that the winners actually play in business. Those three rules, I'm going to, let me just say them first and then I'll explain them. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. And today I'm with Paul Singh, Paul is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Bump Health. He's also a very active angel investor, and he's here today to tell us all about both of these two very interesting lives that he's living. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and, and honestly, I'm here uh, happy to also learn from you as well. I've been listening to the podcast for a while. Oh, thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about these dual lives that you're leading. On one hand, you're a very active angel investor, on the other hand, you've got your own baby, so to speak, which is Bump Health. So tell us, how do you juggle these two things and what, is a, you know, what does a typical week look like for you? Uh, okay, so that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I wear two hats. Uh, the first is as an angel investor where uh, I, I try to invest in about 200 new companies every year, uh, and I've been doing that for about 15 years now. The second hat I wear... Uh, alongside that is uh, as co-founder and chief strategy officer at Bump Health. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's a loaded question. If if the real question is is how do you spend your week? You know, I would say it's it's 90% on Bump Health and and 10% on evaluating new opportunities and things like that. Um, that. I'm hesitating because I don't want to take over the show here and 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 bore your your audience to to death here, but. Uh, with early stage angel investing, it is not as time uh, intensive as people think. Uh, and I, I actually think for operators in the DTC space these days, investing should be part of your uh, personal portfolio. I, I like to call it the street MBA. It is the cheapest way for me to actually get a pulse of what everyone else is doing at any given time, what's working, what's not. And then I can use that to, to kind of guide my own direction inside my own company as well. Gotcha. When it all comes down to it, and when you're looking at that volume of opportunity, there must be something, I guess it's almost like working out, where you really get trained to start looking for certain things. But ultimately, what is the one or two factors that really just tell you this is a go or a no-go decision? Oh, uh, and I'm trying to keep it simplistic here for you, but I, I, I guess what I would say is, is that um, early stage investing is a lot simpler than people think it is uh, because there's not a lot of information to, to review. Often these companies may not have a customer yet or they may only have five customers. I mean, they're very, very early. So most due diligence at this stage happens in the rearview mirror. So at this stage, I like to say that we're we're just taking bets. That's what we're doing. So my average initial uh, investment size is around $50,000. Um, I'm never going to be the only one in that round. The company might be raising $300,000, $500,000, a million. So 
Um, the thing I want to stress to you, though, is that angel investing at the earliest stage is a lot simpler than most people make it. And while I know your question is more about what are the one or two things I look for, the truthful answer to that is there is no answer. What I look for is, is what are things that make this uninvestable? And then if as long as I can uh, filter those out, then I'm just taking the bet on whatever's left over. Um, I understand. So yeah, I, it's so a bit it, of a cliche, but I like to tell people mm -hmm. if I knew who the unicorns were in advance, I wouldn't have to do the 200 bets. I'd just invest course, in those 10 yeah, every year. We, we all would. <laughs> yeah. And at that scale, you're not, you're not really able to meet the teams, I suppose. So it's less of a less of a decision around the quality of the team I'm suspecting and more just about the idea and, the, and the, the timing of it and the problem that it's solving. Is it more about that than the team? Well, it's actually easier these days to meet teams because we have tools like Zoom and Riverside and, and, and all these things. It was much harder when I started. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm only 41, but uh, in the tech world, I feel like that's ancient. But the 15 years ago, you have to put it into context. 15 years ago, when I started investing, I had to get on an airplane. I had to go to the demo day in Austin, Texas or London or Tokyo. And that's what I did. Uh, these days, it's actually much easier to say, hey, when are you available? Let's hop on a call for 20 minutes and, and let's chat. Um, this, the second thing I'll just say about that, though, is, is that warm introductions go a long way towards vetting a lot of the founding team early on. Um, so while I may not have physically met that team, the chances are is that when between my own video chats with them and the size of our existing portfolio, uh, chances are that we are usually within two or three separations from them and we can kind of find quick references behind the scenes as well so um, I, the, the thing I want to to the listeners that actually care about this side of my work I would just say to you uh, don't listen to the people that make this sound more complicated than it is at the end of the day if you listen to podcasts like this one you're operating a company you're trying to build it and and the truth is is that while everybody tries to make more correct decisions. The truth is, is that all of us are in the business of making fewer wrong decisions. And so if you want to become a better angel investor, look at more investment opportunities. That doesn't mean you have to say yes more often. You have to look at more investment opportunities. And that same sort of model works for operators today as well. If you want to make fewer wrong decisions as you build your company, you would be well served to talk to as many entrepreneurs as you can, as quickly as you can, to start developing your own heuristics, your own pattern matching, uh, yeah. th things like that. Uh, yeah, I guess th I have a couple of what might sound like lame sports analogies. One is with baseball, of course, when you get more at-bats and you just see more pitches, you're going to become a better hitter. And I, I didn't play baseball, but I played football, American football. And I remember um, a coach in college saying a lot of times that it well, winning is about is coming down to execution and making fewer mistakes, making fewer mental mistakes, and usually that comes down to turnovers. If if you win the turnover uh, differential, you have a ninety five percent chance of uh, of winning the game. But I think that that holds true in business too, which is what you just said. A lot of times it's not obsessing over or making every right decision, but making sure that you avoid making really big bad ones. That, that that's that correct. Can really torpedo the business. 
That's correct. Yeah. And please keep me reined in here because my superpower is to ramble. But I, I will just, I'm glad you said the sports analogy because when I first write it, wrote my thesis for this about 15 years ago, it was called Moneyball for Startups. It was based off that book and that, that oh, movie, yeah. Moneyball. Book. I think this also applies to the operators here. I think in the earliest stage of companies, speed really does matter because you've got to iterate as quickly as you can to find those customers, get those conversions, things like that. But as your company gets larger, uh, what's not often discussed in our respective communities is the importance of better decision making and, and what that really means. Because for you to grow, as you probably know better than anybody, for you to grow 10% when your annual revenue is $10,000, you're just looking for another thousand bucks and you can iterate your way through that very quickly. Split testing, paid, TikTok, whatever, right? You're at $100 million and you're looking for 10%. Well, you got the same number of hours in the year that I do. And now you've got to find a better way to make fewer wrong decisions. And I would argue in all of my own rambling here, I would argue that as the stakes get bigger and your company gets bigger and you continue to search for more and more growth, angel investing is probably the cheapest way for you to stay on top of things and learn very, very quickly, far faster than your peers when it comes to what is actually working for everybody else and where you're going to go find that next 10% of growth th this year. So uh. I'd like to call out your most recent tweet because it really popped out at me and it's from less than an hour ago. And it says, I don't need, I don't know who needs to hear this, but everything's easier if you make the other, if you make it the other person's idea, management, sales, leadership, investing, everything. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, it's hard to shove a lot of context into 200 characters or whatever. But, you know, uh, the context there is that I was talking to a couple of my portfolio founders on a call late last week. And one of the common questions that was coming up was about partnerships and things like that. And a lot of the tactics that people had been kind of talking about that weren't working for them were about deal terms and about you know, you know, they were like trying to tweak the deal. Hey, do you think this deal term would get that company to partner? You know, those sort of things. And I kind of paused and I, I sat back. And if you can imagine it, this was a Zoom call with about 50 of our founders on it last week. And I just said, like, look, here's the thing. The, the deal terms, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know how the person on the other side of the table is thinking and how they'll receive those deal terms. Try it. Tell me how it goes. But what I do know in, in, in 15 years, so I've been running businesses my, that I started, you know, I started my first business in 1998, I believe. Uh, so I've been doing this for a long time. And what I learned a long time ago accidentally was that if you're selling, there's a high, that's a very, sell, sales is risky, especially as the deal sizes get bigger. You know, if you're talking about closing a multi-million dollar partnership even, right? You're not, selling that is really hard. What you've really got to do is start from the beginning uh, of figuring out what it is that they really want and, and really speaking to that. I, I'm hesitating here because I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I, one of the things I talk a lot about with my portfolio is, is what I call the three invisible rule, the, the three rules of the invisible game. And I hesitate here because I'm going to look like a crazy person, but you know, hopefully your audience can flame me online or just ignore me completely. So there is a game people play in business. And then there, I think there's the invisible game that the winners actually play in business. Those three rules, I'm going to, let me just say them first and then I'll explain them. Rule number one, 
uh, your brand is not what you said it is. It's how everybody else perceives you, how they talk about you. The second rule is that if you understand the hopes, fears, and dreams of the person across the table from you better than they can describe themselves, you've already won. And the, the, um, uh, and now I've got a brain fart as I'm talking to you about this. So if, so the, the, the first one being that they, that you, what you think your brand is may not necessarily be it. It's what they think it is. The second is that, um, that actually the, the people that if they can get deep into the desires and passions of the, of their if user, you understand what they want, then yeah. you need to like push just that. So if I said to you, I, well, I, again, I'm hesitating cause I don't know where you want to go with this, but I'll just say like. The, what I'm telling you that these are not like rocket science. I, you know, I mean, you've been around the block too. But then at the same time, you and I probably both know a lot of very, very uh, smart people that make very basic mistakes. So, for example, I, I still remember the first time I learned one of these rules. I, it was probably 1999 or something like that. I was running a web hosting company that I had started uh, back then. And I remember one day the pager went off way back then for the young people listening. Yeah, right. For the young people listening way back in the day, there were no uh, there was no cloud. You know, there were there were server farms. And so the pager went off and I had to run over to the data center and I had to fix something. Anyway, the next day, the customer called. It was a very well-known customer that, that everybody uses today, actually. And um, I was talking to the VP that ne- that next morning, and, and uh, he said, uh, "Well, thanks for fixing that." Da da da. da. Um, he s- and then he said, like nothing, like it was nothing. Right before he hung up, he said, "You don't charge me enough for this." And and I and I was like, "What? What are you? What are you talking about? This is a publicly traded company now, by the way." Uh, and so I was like, "What? Do you, what did you mean by that?" He said, "Well, what do you think you sold me? What do you think I pay you for?" And I said, "Well." I sold you web hosting and you've got this cage of servers at my, he's like, no, no, I am the CTO. Yeah. He goes, I'm the CTO of this company. Uh, I, I, you sold me sleep. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, look, I, I, anyway, so it it dawned on me. Yeah. He's going to sleep well tonight. Right. So, and, and if I screwed it up, he could blame me. You know, and so all of a sudden, like that changed everything for me about 20 years. That's why that became one of those rules, because he I thought I was selling web hosting. He was buying something completely different at that level. He was buying uh, uh, from a defensive standpoint. He was buying the ability to point at me if I screwed it up. And from an offensive standpoint, he was buying the abil- his time back so that he could actually focus on other things. And I didn't understand that. I was, I was 18, 19, 20 years old at the time. Um, and that's why like these rules of the invisible game seem very basic, but everybody makes these common mistakes. So, so again, I think rule number one is not what you said your brand was. It's how they perceived you. Uh, uh, rule number two is like if, if you really understand what they want, you must only sell to that. You must only talk about that. Anything else is just, is just wasted breath. That's why it became uh, uh, rule number two. But, but again, I'm hesitating because I feel like I'm making it about me and I don't want to do that. I think one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about these days is that like, and let me just throw this out there, Paris, and then you can kind of like shut me down and, and, and never invite me back here. But here's the thing. There is this narrative in our respective industries that you have to raise money to be aggressive, that you have to, in other words, raising money is seen as a mark of credibility for many 
DTC, e-commerce, B2B, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. The narrative is Yeah, like a rite of passage, you, huh? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And one of the messages I really want to send is that uh, that's just not true. What is true is that the tactics that a lot of venture-backed companies use to grow should be on the... The, 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 in, on the same tactics whiteboard as bootstrapped companies. And I don't see enough of that. In fact, when we think about Bump Health, we are bootstrapped. We, like, we don't have, like, people can say, oh, well, you know, Paul's funding it or whatever. That doesn't mean it's boot. No, I, like, we have no, other than the initial 100K that went into the company, for four years, there's never been any more money put into the company. We just finished last year at just about a $40 million run rate. We have two X-star revenue every year for the last four years, and we'll keep doing it. And the thing is, everybody can do this. I know that sounds, you know, maybe like a cliche, but I, I think that, like, when we think about the people that are listening to your podcast, these are operators. These are people that probably have the same amount of ambition as everybody else, same amount of skills, right? But, we, it, but I want to really help dispel this myth that it's venture-backed or nothing like you so, can build big companies yeah. what just are you saying paul that even if you had raised a lot of money let's say a year or two years ago you'd still be executing the same growth strategy that you're doing now correct uh, that's one of two things i want to say and you picked up on the first one very very accurately so first off nothing would change if we had raised money but the second part that i think is really important is that when we think about which large industries are going to get disrupted over the last over the next five ten and fifteen years I think it's going to be bootstrapped companies that do it, not venture-backed companies, because bootstrapped companies can take longer bets. So, for example, I'm in the women's health industry, that broad industry. We call it women's health because I don't know what else to call it, but like when you look at women's health, whether through the lens of consumer product goods, insurance, healthcare, SaaS, whatever, it's all uh, heavily barbelled. What I mean by that is, is on one side of the extreme, you have a few very large multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies. And on the other side of that barbell, you have lots of little companies. Now, by our mutual tech circle measurement, those little companies are still pretty big. But, but when you actually compare their revenues to the incumbents, we are all but rounding errors still. And so what I mean by this, though, is, is that with our industry, for example, if we had been venture backed, you know, I, I, and again, I'm careful here because I don't know, I'm going to assume that people don't know what being venture backed means. When you raise money from other people, what is not often discussed is that there are implicit agreements that you make that say you will grow enough every 12 to 18 months to justify raising more money at at least 3x the valuation. And, and so when you think about that, Think about the flip side of that. You cannot take large bets uh, because you may not get enough traction on those things within those 12 to 18 months. And so you won't even touch very large industries. So, for example, here in the U.S., um, you know, our company is primarily U.S. focused. Uh, if we had been venture backed, we would not have been able to open our latest business unit uh, in the healthcare space because healthcare, at least in the United States, takes eight, nine, 10 months at minimum just to get the licenses you need. That's very hard to go after uh, if you were venture backed. But the numbers, the revenue numbers are much, much larger than anything anybody's ever seen in the SaaS world. So 
uh, well, anyway, let me pause there because I'm I'm sort of taking yeah. you off tra track here. No, I think. That, that's that's <laughs> the, uh, fascinating stuff because I've I've interviewed a lot of bootstrapped founders and and also tons of people who have raised money, and it's just it's a different it's a different dynamic. And I certainly and we have clients as well who have raised, and I think once you raise, it's like there's a big clock on the wall that's ticking, and wh whether or not you look at it or hear it, it's there and you're aware of it. And you know that the investor, as you said, they're looking for a three to five X return and it's relatively short term. And I think that leads people, well, it leads people to short term decision making, which from a marketing perspective often means that you, you postpone things like uh, content marketing and really building a brand and you focus on just acquisition, bottom of the funnel, CAC, uh, CAC, 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 CAC. And maybe two years later, you've saturated that, you've squeezed every drop out of the bottom of the funnel and you say, okay, now, well, what's next? Because we need to keep growing, but now there's, there's no more search volume in paid search. Where do we go? What do we do? And oops, we haven't really created a brand because we've been so acquisition focused and that's going to take us a year. And then oh, now you stop growing and you can't raise another round and then it implodes. And um, well, I, I've, I've seen it multiple times. And I think if I, I haven't been in that position myself, but I would always be looking to bootstrap first rather than go out and raise. I do wanna, I do wanna get a little bit deeper into Bump and into the, the whole family of brands uh, underneath Bump Health because you've done something very interesting here, which I think is also not very typical, which uh, you, you've got, I believe it's, um, well, you have several different sub-brands underneath the umbrella of Bump Health, is that correct? Yeah, uh, I'll just summarize it and I'll tell you as much as you like, but I'll just summarize it by telling you that Bump Health uh, is a collection of four business units today. Um, the first is Bump Consumer. We'll talk about what they are whenever you like. But the first is Bump Consumer, or what we call internally Bump Consumer. The second is called Bump Wellness. The third is Bump Health. I'm, I'm sorry, Bump Medical. And then the fourth is Bump Life. And each of them has a specific sort of set of industries or products that it, they sell. But it's all under one mothership called Bump Health. And we are about uh, just about 100 people about 60 of our, I would say about 60% of our people are at our headquarters in the Midwest United States in, in Illinois, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and then the other, you know, 40% or so are distributed equally around everywhere. Gotcha. I really want to understand the branding decision of why to create another layer or a sub, a sub brand level with those four major buckets, as opposed to maybe having just all, of, all the products live under a single brand and investing up into that one brand. What was behind that decision to create that second sub-brand level? It's somewhat complicated, but I'll summarize by saying two things. The first is, we just sort of ended up here. <laughs> That's a, the first part of the answer is, is we sort of just showed up here, got this way. Uh, but the second is because we kind of had to. Um, so for example, Bump Consumer is the sort of entity that is responsible for selling any of our brands or products directly to consumers. So it could be our bump boxes, subscriptions, our Glow Organics products, uh, whether it's through Amazon or the retail channel, anything that we sell directly to the consumer goes through Bump. Bump Wellness, for example, is pretty much everything we have 
but white labeled for corporations. So it's the same product, but it has to be marketed a slightly different way because we sell into the human resources divisions of, of large companies. And the way they need to kind of understand our product offerings and suites just has to be different. Similarly with Bump Medical, we are an interface between American consumers and their healthcare providers. Uh, and so the way that we are required under regulatory, uh, for regulatory reasons, the way we're required to communicate is much different. So it's, again, it's partly because we just kind of stumbled our way into this, but also partly because we have to talk about the stuff we sell or give or whatever in different ways to different audiences, but it all comes from the same set of wa same warehouse that we own. It's all handled by the same people. Uh, you know, in fact, this may or may not be surprising to the people listening to this, but for example, Bump Consumer, I think off the top of my head is probably seven full-time people. Bump Medical, I think is like five. Bump Wellness is like two, maybe three. But then the fulfillment is still that that team is our largest that, that i think that's probably 50 or 60 people that actually and they're have fulfilling to across all the business lines correct yeah gotcha. yeah so we are completely integrated internally so um we don't really have vendor uh we don't do 3pls we don't i mean we do bring in like consultants from time to time and agencies from time to time on the you know the 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 sales side right whether it's like social or paid or engineering. Sometimes we'll bring in, you know, agencies for that, but for everything else, we're fully integrated internally, uh, end to end, and it helps us control our margins, uh, in a much better way than, than everyone else. Um, let's go wherever you want to go with this though, because I'm happy to share as much as you want to know. Yeah. Well, there's something that, um, that I am seeing directly in your, in LinkedIn here is that, um, that you say that the TLDR is one-time CAC, LTV large, predictable and diversified. What that makes me think is that you strategically use one of the most appropriate channel to acquire the new customer. That might be a subscription box. It might be a health and wellness one-time purchase, um, or who knows, it could be something else. And then you're able to cross sell across from there. And then in, in, in doing so, you have a single acquisition cost but then through that cross-sell, you extend the life cycle and the lifetime value of that customer. Is that true? And how, how do you go about doing that? Yes. Okay. Is it true? Yes. Uh, and I'll answer the question, but let me just say this. I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, let me just say this. If, if you're listening to this and you only take one thing away from this episode, I would encourage you, like as I explain Bump Health and answer your question here for the next two or three minutes, I would encourage the listeners to replace the name Bump Health with your own company because you have to start thinking this way and I'll explain why in a moment. So uh, yeah, so what you're referring to is a sort of my manifesto on Bump Health and it's pinned to the top of my Twitter profile. I post it to LinkedIn every few months and, and essentially what it comes down to is this, is that, that, you know, I think that we all need to be thinking of ourselves as uh, customer acquisition companies that happen to sell whatever we sell, not the other way around. A lot of people say, oh, I make this widget, and so now I'm going to go find people that want to buy that widget. That's not wrong, but, but when you approach your customer that way, then my manifesto will make no sense to you. So, so on the flip side, we see ourselves as a mom acquisition company that happens to sell what we sell. And so... Um, the, I, I don't want to go off topic, which is why I'm hesitating here. I'm going to try to stay on topic with your question here. But here's the thing. For a, like, for a lot of reasons, 
it turns out that, um, okay, I'm going to say it just because the way I want to say it, and if anybody listening to this hates it, you, I will Go own it. it. You can tweet at me. But here's the thing. Uh, look, first of all, from, an, from, a, from a personal standpoint, mom's lives have not gotten materially better at the same rate as most other industries. Uh, so, so hear me out before, you, before anybody crucifies me. Or so this is on a personal note, then I want to talk about the professional note. On a personal note, people like you and me, our lives have gotten materially easier because there's so much software available. I mean, look at this recording. We, we're recording through software that we pay like 19 bucks for or something like that, and it's high quality, right? Okay, but like, think about moms on a personal note. I got three kids, and even though watching our kids kind of, you know, watching my wife carry them and stuff like that, yes, it's better in the sense that she's got more health care these days than she did 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but it's kind of not the same. Like, you still show up at the doctor and you have to wait forever. Uh, at least here in the U.S., I can't go to the grocery store and tell you which products are actually safe. Research-oriented, like with on based on research, I can't tell you what's actually safe. How is that possible, you know, in 2018, 2019, 2022, you know, that sort of thing. So on a personal note, we have to do this and we have to like kind of think about that broad 20-year period between when a woman decides to conceive and when that child becomes an adult. Like what are those things? Like how, how, do, I, how do I make those things better? For, for her uh, and the family she loves. But then now let's talk about it on a professional note, like as capitalists for a moment here. You know, that broad 20-year period between when mom decides to conceive and when that child becomes an adult, what would it take if I wanted to be so useful, so well ingrained in that mom's life that she was spending six out of every $10 from her household through us? What would that look like? If you really think about that statement, it requires you to go broad. So for us, for example, we started out with a subscription box. When we started uh, years ago, it was a subscription box. We acquired mom at the point of conception, and the idea was is that we would just send her exactly what she needed at the right time through that pregnancy in a monthly box. And for a lot of reasons, we can argue about why or that is or isn't unique. But for us, it worked really well, and we were able to you know, push out the competitors and really dominate. Uh, but then you think about what happens after birth. Well, that child and that mom still go through things that they need every month all the way through the baby's third birthday, whether it's teething rings or uh, reading books. And uh, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, uh, you know, and then some of those products are replenishable, right? So that, that's why Bump Consumer is sort of just our internal name for that business unit is Bump Consumer because it's everything that mom and baby need from the day she conceives until that baby's third birthday. But then we started thinking like, well, wait a second, either that mom or her partner work. Okay, well, let's start talking to their HR divisions and figuring out what it is that we can do to support pregnancies and, and families. Well, that became Bump Wellness. Then we started thinking, well, wait a second, like at least here in the United States, our healthcare is privatized and with a separate discussion on whether that's good or bad. But, you know, here in the U.S., we are mandated to have insurance, but like it's not very easy to get insurance at all. Or sorry, to get what you're owed on insurance. For example, I'll just use myself as an example. I am entitled to a $100 reimbursement for these glasses that I'm wearing. But in order to do that, in 2022, I actually have to print out uh, 
a, a piece of paper from the Aetna website, the insurance website. I have to get an in, uh, itemized receipt from Warby Parker. I have to fill this thing out in black ink, not blue ink, mind you. And then I have mm-hmm. to fax it. Fax it. What in the oh, world is that? Ouch. And then six weeks later, they send me a check. And then I have to, luckily, my bank has Co like deposit. e-deposit, right? Uh-huh. But, but we headache. think like, yeah. And so I, I don't, I only give, I only tell you this because like, when we think about expanding into other business units, we don't think about like what, what I like to tell our team is, is we are not in the business of innovation. We are in the business of entrepreneurship. And what I mean by that is, is like, we are not here trying to build a better rocket to go or, or build a rocket to go to Mars. That requires innovation because it doesn't exist right now. Right. We, ex- we are entrepreneurs. We look at who are the incumbents in these spaces that are already making loads of money off of antiquated processes. And what would they look like if they were rebuilt today with t- a deep understanding of today's technology, a deep understanding of today's digitally native customers, and no legacy baggage, you know? And so n- now that I've rambled all that out, that's what I, when I say to the audience, like, put your own company's name in there, that what I mean is, is like start to think about like what is what would it look like if you were a customer acquisition company that happened to sell whatever you would sell, and when you really start to think about it that way, it forces you to start thinking like well wait a second, if I sold if I if I already sell a widget to this customer, what is this customer actually like and where else are they spending their money? Let's let's expand in their wallet, you know let's expand where they're already spending money. Um, now that I've said all that though. Here we are in 2022. I don't think it's an option anymore. You have to think this way. I can't predict the markets like anybody else can, right? But everything I'm reading and maybe you're reading kind of points towards a 30 to 40% chance of a recession coming in the next 12 to 18 months, which will primarily affect consumers. Now, we can argue later whether that's American only or global or whatever, but here's the point. One of the other reasons why you should be thinking about diversification like this is that not only does it compound your LTV, right? Like for us, it's one-time cost of acquisition. We acquire that mom one time, regardless of which business unit she comes into us at first. And then we we expand the LTV by cross-marketing her in, inside our business units, right? So when times are good, the, that compounds. I mean, it's just really good. <laughs> but when times are bad, like when a recession comes, let's just say, let's just play this out for a moment. If a recession hits and let's just say the uh, problems primarily affect the consumer market. Well, our consumer division will likely feel the hit because it's selling directly to consumers. But our, but our, our corporate division won't, our medical division won't, because those are, those are mandated. Um, so, so anyway, in good days, multiple business units compound, and in bad days, uh, those business units hedge uh, they're almost like insurance yeah. policies for each other. Anyway, I, I think it's really fascinating. I think back to your podcast, like the interesting thing about marketing is that like in general, it's the same as it's always been. It's just that the mediums have changed. But but at the, at the core, it's it's still the same, right? It's copywriting and it's it's persuasion and, and all these yeah. things. I think but, but the, at its essence, it's yeah. psychology. That's still, right. Yeah. But that's exactly right. But the difference today though is our buyers whether you're B2B, DTC, doesn't matter. Our buyers have access to far more spend. They can influence far more purchasing decisions within their own family units and within their businesses. We think, like for example with us, we think of mom as the entry into the household. 
And for example, if you're listening to this and you have a B2B company, uh, for example, you might say that first customer that you sell, that first manager, that first whoever, like they are the entry point into the rest of the organization. And, and um, I know that sounds really basic, but you know, I think I it's, think uh, I, in fact, it's pretty profound because we're now in the age where the, the consumer has all the power because they have the information. And getting back to something you said at the beginning, that it's all about access, actually. It's about ac- access to that customer in the moment where they need what, what you have, where they have a pain point that they express to Google usually. And those zero, those zero click searches, bingo, you're the one serving the answer just at the time of need or the time where that question gets, uh, gets right. typed in or spoken into to the phone. And um, that is a form of access. And that's actually why search marketing is still so powerful because it's access to people in, in those micro moments of need. And if you get in front of them, you win. You exactly. get the access because they have the power, actually. They have the power of all the information of the world uh, in their pocket. So, that's and they're exactly, utilizing that. That's exactly right. And if, if you agree with that, which I do, by the way, I agree with what you're saying there. But if you're listening to this and you agree to that, then what you have to admit is that distribution is more important than the product. Like, don't get me wrong. The product has to be good. You can't just sell trash to somebody, right? But like, don't differentiate on product. Like, what you're actually different, we are all uh, trying to differentiate uh, through attention. And uh, that's it. It doesn't matter whether you're B2B, DTC, whatever. Uh, and that's what a lot of companies don't, don't think about these days. Um, you know, and I, I think, like, Back to that whole HubSpot thing, which, by the way, disclaimer, I'm not an investor in it. I don't hold any stock in it. I don't, I'm not shilling it because I have some financial gain. I truly think that it's the least discussed but most important thing right now. And I guarantee you 10, 10 11, 12 months from now, we're going to see multiple companies starting to do that. Uh, creating accelerator, I'm doing air quotes here, accelerator programs for content creators because what they're trying to do is scale content creation organically at a reasonable price point to your to what you're saying and generate awareness and be almost uh, uh, omnipresent so that when that buyer is ready uh they'll remember the hubspot name yeah you know i think even the hubspot uh, that hubspot accelerator program or the, the creators program is almost a web3 kind of a play I interviewed Kieran Flanagan, the, the SVP of marketing at HubSpot, a couple of months ago, and he's a very big proponent of Web3. And, and he also talked about this creator's program. And with the, with the concept of Web3, Web you, you, you try to create a community and, and make those people invested in your product by giving them some sort of a tokenized, um, almost a share. Uh, it, it could be... Um, I mean, it's just, it's a blockchain concept, but, but this creator program is similar in that you're, you're kind of allowing people to become micro investors in your company by saying, I, I have great con- content that I can contribute to you. You can put your brand on it, and, but in return, I'm going to get, uh, there's a return for me as well because I, I have access to your en- enormous platform and your audience. And if my content shines, uh, then I have, I have a channel that I never had before. And, and then you have the content and, and HubSpot has always been about, it's, it's always been a content marketing machine since, yep. since the early yep. days when they introduced the inbound marketing and they still, they, they're still doing that. So I think it's brilliant. I think in a, in a little way, it's, it's almost like oh. tokenizing, tokenizing content c- creation. 
So yeah, I'm interested to see where, where that, what that looks like in 12 months. Absolutely. Uh, and I'll just say one other thing. I know you got to probably run here, uh, but I would just say that, uh, you know, for example, in our industry, in our mutual industries, right? Like, let's just call you, let's just use tech as a big air quote here. You know, iOS 14.5 really made it uncomfortable for all of us where, you know, all of a sudden you have, you're unable to target people and things like that. You know, uh, what, back to the whole point I made at the beginning here about, hey, I think everybody should try to invest. Everybody should, even if you don't have the money to do it, which is okay, still try to like hang out with venture funded founders and understand what they're talking about when, you know, there's, there's things they're talking about with their portfolio founders that are not discussed publicly. But here's where I'm going with this. When 14.5 hit, because it affected us, like our CAC, our paid CAC went up 3, 4x, uh, and it's not going to come down. It's never going to come down, right? Wow, okay. Uh, what was fascinating is, is right around that same time, who, like, who ended up, like, for us, that, this was very uncomfortable, you know, because CAC was rising, just like for everybody else. But, you know, for the, there was a certain set of people that this was normal. Uh, there were industries, for example, the music industry, uh, where it was, is, is, has never really had cookies. You know, they've never had the ability to target. So when they, when they signed on, and I'm being very general here, but for example, when they signed on some rap artist or pop artist or country artist or whatever, they, they for the last 50 years, for the most part, the majority of their advertising spend has been cookie-less. So what I'm saying with this is, is that because I had been investing in, 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 in the space and talking to a lot of people, as soon as that iOS 14.5 stuff started affecting us, well, lo and behold, the companies that started coming across the table were platforms uh, started by data scientists coming out of Warner Music and Time and all these other companies, right? And I just use that as an example of like, the industry will continue to change next month, next quarter, as you know. But the more visibility people like you and I have and, and others have, like the faster we can iterate um, and adapt. And I hope that doesn't get lost in all this. Um, yeah. Well, so. that, that's a fascinating point, Paul. And I think that's that's going to be our primary topic of our next uh, our next podcast interview, because you will be invited back. You uh, you, you might have been worried that you said said something uh not to get invited back, but uh, but absolutely, I'd love to talk about how data science is going to be the answer to a post third-party cookie world for marketing, because we're all in on that concept too. Um, but talk about let's it. leave that for the next time. And and otherwise, it's been really fascinating, Paul, to have this discussion. We touched on a lot, and um, I really wish you continued success with Bump. And I encourage all of our listeners to think about your company like Bump and to substitute your name in there and think about how you can diversify, how you can vertically, in, vertically integrate and focus more on distribution because that is the differentiator. So Paul, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, where can people find you online? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Twitter, uh, I'm just Paul Singh on Twitter. Uh, if you prefer email, uh, paul at resultsjunkies.com is my personal email. And uh, do me a favor and mention the, uh, the, the podcast uh, in the subject line, and I'll, I'll, know, I'll know you're one of Paris' friends. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Paul. I'm looking forward to the next one. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciated it. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. 
That's hophop.online. Have a great day.